Hi there and welcome again to Bill Allen's Facebook Studies. I am coming to you from downtown Tyler, Texas where it is a cool November day. Welcome to the month of November and welcome to fall finally coming around here in Northeast Texas. We uh, appreciate the changing of the season so much. We don't get to see it as well here as Joyce and I did while we were living for over nine years in North Carolina. So we're a little jealous and missing that this time of year, especially. But Texas is our home and our home state, and we are blessed, blessed beyond measure to be here. Thank you for joining in. Uh, today is going to be a a quick Bible study it will likely be around the typical 30 minutes, but so much of what uh, Jesus says and does is incredible. Everything he says is significant. Everything he does has power and grace and compassion in it. And uh, one of my challenges is leading a Bible study twice a week for about 15 to 30 minutes, somewhere in there. Uh, on a whole week of reading in the Daily Bible in chronological order, edited by Eflagard Smith. And uh, today I'm feeling it in a special way because there's so much I want to share from several passages and chapters of the Bible that come up in this week's reading, including some of the things that we've read today. And I'm going to start right there because I believe this passage in Mark chapter 9 is a part of uh, the reading for November the 3rd. Uh, the reading for today. Um, and that's where we're going to start. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. I know you hear me say that all the time, but it truly is one of my favorite Bible stories. And it's one that I identify with. And I think you will too, because I think we share the sentiment that this wonderful, exasperated, honest father shares when he brings his son to the disciples first and then to Jesus. So let's read it. We're not going to read much today, but we're going to read this one. In John 9, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 9, we'll be in John 6 in a moment, but Mark chapter 9, um, starting with uh, verse 14. Mark 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What a great statement that is. Verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. The disciples couldn't do anything with this boy. Uh, we would call them symptoms of epilepsy or some kind of speech de uh, defect or something. But clearly, Scripture says he had a spirit inside of him. And as we read this passage, we'll see just how powerful this evil spirit was. Jesus says, okay, bring him to me. Verse 20, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, 
said Jesus in verse 23. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Don't you love that father? Don't you love his honesty? Don't you love his, uh, his compassion for his son and his faith that somebody somewhere can help? Maybe it's Jesus and his open confession that he doesn't have it all together. I, I feel a special connection with this man because I feel like that's where we are many times. It's where I am many times. It's not that we no longer believe. It's not that we've given up on God or given up on our faith or given up on the church. But there are times in our lives when we go through very difficult moments and, and we cry out to God like this father cried out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. <clears throat> He's very honest and he tells Jesus, look, I haven't given up my faith, but I tell you, it's hard right now. It's hard. And I'm asking you to help me to overcome my unbelief. Well, Jesus must have seen in this man something that he really, really liked. Because it goes on to say, When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Ha, what welcome words for this father and this son. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. What a great, great moment. It shows the power of God, the power of Jesus Christ, casting out this spirit and restoring this boy's life and health to him. But it does far more than that. It demonstrates Jesus' compassion on a father and a son, but it also demonstrates where we are in much of our lives and many times, in many ways. Christianity is not something where you read through the Bible and it promises, oh, if you'll just become a Christian, all of the problems in your life will go away. That's not true. In fact, as a passage we are going to read in just a few moments tells us, sometimes our troubles and our difficulties are increased because of our faith. Because Satan, just like he was with this boy, is alive and well today, and he's very active. And we can see that he tempts us and tests us and does anything he can, throws anything he can at us to destroy our faith, just like he did this father. And so with this father, we look to heaven and we look to Jesus and we say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Ride me through this storm, Jesus. Heal me. Help me. That's what this man was saying. That's what we say so much of the time as well. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Well, there's so much in the life of Christ and in the Gospels and his teaching and in his actions that are reminders of this concern that we have for ourselves and for each other and that God has for us as well. One of the times in scripture where uh, one of those uh, times when Jesus feeds the multitudes is found in John chapter 6. It's a great passage and I love it so much and we won't read it. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is there with the crowd and uh, it's getting close to dinner time. <laughs> and so Jesus is knowing full well what he's going to do. Um, the disciples come to him. Uh, Philip comes to him and he says, 
we need to send these people away. We're, we don't have anything for them to eat. And Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. And Philip says, are you kidding? Uh, it would take half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have just a bite. Later on, he says that uh, there were 5,000 men in this crowd. Well, in, uh, in John chapter 6, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew and Philip show up in the coolest of times in the Gospel of John. But Andrew, Peter's brother, who had brought Simon Peter to Christ, uh, just like Philip had gone and gotten Nathaniel. You remember that story. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, he's known to say. But here Andrew uh, go and Philip come to Jesus and they say, hey, look, we've got a little boy here and he's got his lunch with him. But all he has are five loaves of bread and two fish. That's crazy that that could even begin to feed just a few people, much less thousands. Jesus tells them to sit down and they do. And he breaks the bread, he blesses it, he thanks the Father for it, and then he tells them to pass it around, and they do. And everyone has plenty to eat, and he tells them to gather up what's left, and sure enough, they do, and it fills 12 baskets just with what was left. It's an amazing sign of power. But then Jesus goes on to say, again, power and compassion, feeding the hungry in this case, but Jesus goes on to say in this very passage, I am the bread that came down from heaven in verse 41. He applies it. He talks to them about it and he applies it. And he continues on talking to them about how they are going to have a hard time because they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to become a part of his kingdom. And that chases a lot of people away, and it's a hard passage. We hear as we remember partaking of communion each Sunday, the bread that represents the body of Christ and the wine, the cup, the grape juice that represents the blood. Uh, perhaps that's what Jesus is looking ahead to, but it is enough to drive many of them away, all of the ones that um, he had just fed. And so he looks around at the end of the chapter and only his disciples are left, his 12 apostles. And he asks them, do you want to leave too? And Peter, in one of those great moments where he actually speaks out with the right thing, he says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are the Holy One of God, that you are the Messiah. It's a great, incredible story of faith, of power, of compassion, and then of disbelief and unbelief and discouragement, but of faith again with the 12 saying, we're sticking with you. Um, what a great, great statement. Well, we turn to a few chapters now before our time gets away, starting with Matthew chapter 10, a few chapters in the gospel of Matthew. We started in Mark 9, then went to John 6 now. We're going to be in Matthew 10. And in this passage, Jesus sends out his 12 apostles. And as he does, he tells them some advice. He gives them some counsel and he tells them what's going to happen ahead. And he tells them to focus on the, the people of Israel because that's where his mission is right now. Uh, we see in other places where Jesus reaches out to some non-Jews as well. Uh, but in this case, he tells them to go there, stay with people that will stay with you, uh, preach in cities that will accept you. And if they reject you, just shake the dust off your feet and keep going. Keep going. 
And then Jesus says this in Matthew 10, verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Perhaps looking ahead to that time when these very apostles, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, will uh, stand before Jews and Roman authorities and will be threatened on their lives to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And we read about that in such an incredible way in the book of Acts. Here, Jesus sends them out and he tells them it's not going to go well for you. There are going to be people that are going to reject you, powerful people. Later on in John, as Jesus meets with his disciples towards the, the very end of his life almost, um, he shares at the beginning of John 16 that um, people are going to even put you to death thinking that they're serving the Lord. Again, Jesus doesn't promise that everything is going to go great, that it's going to be easy. In fact, he promises just the opposite. And he tells them, look, you're, you're going to suffer just like I'm going to suffer. And he doesn't hide anything from us, but he challenges us. And he tells us that we've got to love him most of all, even more than this suffering that we are um, experiencing We've read a few things in uh, Matthew 14 as well. John the Baptist is ultimately uh, beheaded. He's killed because of the uh, weakness of, of King Herod and because of the, the resentment and anger and jealousy uh, of his wife and his stepdaughter. And it's just, and, and his own pride as well at the beginning of, of Matthew 15. Another time, another recording of Jesus feeding the multitudes in Matthew 15, uh, 14. And then in Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, is this great incident where Jesus walks on the water. And in Matthew 14, he is joined by the apostle Peter. They see him, they think he's a ghost, and he says, oh no, it's me, it's, it's Jesus. And Peter says, hey Lord, if it's really you, let me come and walk on the water to you. And Jesus says, come on then. And Peter, to his credit, gets out of the boat and walks, takes a few steps and walks toward Jesus. But then he's aware of the wind and the waves and the storm, and he begins to sink. And that's when he says, Lord, save. And it records that Jesus reached out his hand and pulled him up. And the next thing you knew, they were on the boat. And we have the inspiration for that great old Christian hymn, Love Lifted me. I was sinking deep in sin and love lifted me. That great story in Matthew 14. And we forget sometimes that Peter, when he before he started sinking, he was actually walking on water. Uh, I love John Ortberg's uh, book on this story, on uh, Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And I love especially the title to that book. If you're going to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Uh, he talks about thinking through before you take a risk and making sure that this is what Jesus was calling you to do. But he commends Peter, and rightly so, because none of the other apostles got out of the boat that day. Only Peter. 
And yes, he did sink. And yes, he called out for the Lord to help, which is what we are to do. And, uh, and so what a great story there in Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew 15, Jesus looks back on a passage from Isaiah 29 as he sees the, uh, um, the insincerity of the faith of the Jewish leaders. And he reminds them of that scripture passage in Isaiah 29, where Isaiah says, uh, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are just doctrines of men and, uh, and their hearts are far from me. Uh, may we never find ourselves in that same position. In Matthew 16, there are some incredible passages, wonderful statements. Uh, Matthew 16, Jesus has his disciples and he asks them questions and he says, who, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, again, to his credit, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus tells him, I tell you what, Peter, uh, you are blessed in saying that because you didn't figure that out on your own. <laughs> that was revealed to you uh, in a miraculous way. And he says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church in the gates of hell. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Uh, it wasn't built on Peter. That's not what he's saying at all. But it was built on the rock of Jesus, of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember the old hymn we sing, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Just like that little story that we tell and sing about to the kids, about the wise man and the foolish man. Uh, here, Jesus says, upon that rock of me being the Savior, the Son of God, my church will be built and nothing will overcome it. Nothing will go against it. In Mark 9 and also here in Matthew in chapter 17, we read about the transfiguration. It's a great story. Uh, it's one of the few places where Jesus takes not just the 12 apostles, but even a little farther the three ones that seem closest to him, Peter, James, and John. John, not John the Baptist, but the Apostle John. And his brother James, not James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who would be the first apostle killed in Acts chapter 12, but rather uh, ja uh, 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 James, the brother of John, who is that first apostle killed. That's the one that we're talking about here. And they go with Jesus when Jairus' daughter is raised. They go with Jesus a little further in the garden of Gethsemane before his death. And they go with Jesus here up this mountain of transfiguration. And while they're there, Jesus is transfigured before them. And lo and behold, Moses appears and Elijah appears. And Peter, of course, this is one of those times where maybe he should, could have, should have kept his mouth shut. Peter says, it's great for us to be here. We can build three little shelters, and that way we can keep Elijah and Moses around for a while. And a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. A great statement that Moses and the law, Elijah and the prophets, uh, were leading up to this day, but they cannot hold a candle to the one that they see before them, the Son of God himself, Jesus. Um, I love this story, and one of the things I love about it is the two the two that God chose to send to his son Jesus at this moment. 
It was Moses and Elijah. Both of them knew what it was like to be rejected. Both of them knew what it was like to have uh, glory. Uh, Elijah, when he killed all those prophets of Baal and, and um, Moses, of course, being the great lawgiver, but they also knew rejection and they also knew uh, fear. Moses fled for 40 years uh, after it was found out and made known that he had killed that uh, Egyptian defending one of his fellow Israelites. Elijah ran like crazy when the wicked queen Jezebel threatened that she would kill him for killing all those prophets. And now here they are, resurrected in some form, transfigured with Jesus who was transfigured, talking to him about what was to come. Luke's version says that they were talking with him about the suffering that he was about to go through. And boy, who better than Moses and Elijah. It's a great, great moment. And then all of a sudden they're gone and it's just Jesus and, um, and the disciples never forget it. And they bring it into their uh, messages after Jesus is killed and after the church uh, begins. We find it here in the Gospels. What a great, great thing. Uh, Matthew 18 goes on and it talks about uh, repentance and it talks about forgiveness and it talks about sin. That great passage that says, look, if you have trouble with somebody, then go to that person directly in Matthew 18. If that doesn't work, take a couple of people with you. And if that still doesn't work, then, then tell, tell it to the church. And if they won't hear the church, then you may have to destroy that relationship. That relationship could be threatened because of their sinfulness. That's a very extreme measure. In fact, it's found in a chapter. If you read all of Matthew 18, which I'm sure you've done, um, you realize that really the, the, the uh, focus of that chapter is on forgiveness and restoration, talking about the little children uh, and making sure that they can come to Jesus. That great story at the end of Matthew 18, one of those parables where a man was forgiven this huge debt, and then he walked out and he saw someone who owed him just a few dollars, we might say, and he threw him in prison because he wanted his money. And when the master was told what that wicked servant had done, uh, he took away his forgiveness and he put him in jail and it was going to be the rest of his life. Well, Jesus makes the application at the end of Matthew 18 and he says, this is what it's going to be like for you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So the whole message of the chapter is on forgiveness, doing what we can to bring someone back to the Lord, to bring them to understand the great saving, forgiving heart of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a, that's a quick run through of a lot of stories. And there's so many more, as you know, that we've been reading. And we will continue in the Gospels for another couple of weeks or so before we open up Acts chapter 1 and the great story of the church of Jesus Christ and the rest of the New Testament. But as you read through these stories, just pause for a moment and hear what that Holy Spirit is telling you through the inspired word of God. Uh, see the compassion and the power of Jesus Christ like we've never seen before since ever on this earth. And look into his heart and into his eyes and and feel his love for you. Uh, feel the power just like when he was walking on the water and had Peter walk with him. 
when he fed multitudes from just a little boy's lunch. I hear his warnings about how it's not always going to be rosy for us, just like Isaiah heard when he said, here am I, send me. God said, well, it's going to be tough sledding for you, Isaiah. Are you sure you want to do this? Jesus tells us at times it's going to be tough. In that passage, we didn't refer to this this time, but we will in the future. John 16, verse 33, when Jesus says, in the world, you will have trouble. And that's true. But he goes on to say, I have overcome the world. And in the same way, Jesus gives us assurance, just as he did his disciples in the verses that we've read today. And when our faith is threatened, and when we feel like giving up, and when we feel like, boy, this is, this is tough, let's remember that wonderful story that we started with in Mark chapter 9. That father of that son who was suffering so much, and he had done everything he could, and he takes him to the disciples and they can't help, even though he had hoped they would. And Jesus comes along and he brings his son to Jesus and he says, if there's anything that you can do to help, if you can help, please do so. And Jesus, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. It's a bit of a rebuke, actually. And yet we answer with this father, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. If you'll pray that prayer, when those times are tough, I fully believe that Jesus will answer it the same way he answered it for that father. That he'll put the things in your life that you need to give you that encouragement that you need to get you over this hump, to get you over this mountaintop and through this valley so that you will be able to be assured in your faith and to know that even in those low times, Jesus has not given up on you. He has not forsaken you. He's promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you forever to the very end of the age. May God bless you over these next few days, and I'll see you on Tuesday.